This week, we're going to be talking about specifically our digital life. Our digital life is something now that impacts pretty much everybody, especially in Western civilization. Uh, And as we look at technology and how it's evolved constantly, and when I look at it myself in my own lifetime, there was none of this really available when I was a kid. I'm only 49 years old, and the amount of change in just my life has been extraordinary. But it has progressed more in the last five years than it has in the last 50. When you see what's going on technologically in this world, it's mind-boggling. Even the most tech-savvy people are, are running to try to keep up. 50 years ago, or even just 25 years ago, everything that we did was infused with human touch, with, with some human being being involved. Today, that's not the case. Today, the world is highly automated. It's on demand. It's instantaneous and increasingly human-free. Have you noticed that? We are doing more and more with isolation from human beings. We have websites and apps for dating. We have websites and apps to do our online shopping on. We can order food from kiosks. We have robotic assembly lines and self-driving cars. In fact, just earlier this year, Nissan reported that it plans to launch its own self-driving taxi services in Japan very soon. So before you know it, you're not even going to talk to a taxi cab driver. Oh, that's off in the future. No, actually, it's already here. It's already here. Our technology is expanding and growing at an alarming rate. There are robots that now are companion robots. Have you seen this or heard of this? We're going to look into some of these things this week where people are now having relationships with robots. There's artificial intelligence with these robots, and they will have communication and and conversation with you. And, And friends, you can do everything with your robot now. It's unbelievable. And unfortunately, virtual reality is taking over like crazy. Virtual reality is when you're not living in this tangible reality, but you're in a, an online reality to where, unfortunately, what we've discovered through scientific research and experimentation is the line is now becoming blurred between what is real and what is virtual. We'll look at that as well. So there's no question that technology or tech is doing an amazing amount for us. And indeed, it needs to. I mean, there there are advantages to having robots do some things over even the human touch. But what I wanted to find out was, what is it not just doing for us, but what is it doing to us? You follow what I'm saying? What could this technology be doing to us, to our brains, to our creativity, and in our relationships? Most of us just can't seem to disconnect. Can anybody relate to what I'm talking about? Oh, we have two of us. So there's only three of us that can't disconnect. Come on now. Does anybody struggle with disconnecting? Almost all of us, if we were to be honest with ourselves. It seems like we just don't know how to power down anymore. And when we're out in public, all you have to do is look around. And you'll see everybody's face is like this. 
In fact, yesterday, as I was coming, last night, I was coming through the airport. I was in Denver, and in Denver Airport, they have these long, uh, moving sidewalks, and along a really long one on the side were people sitting in, in their chairs waiting for their flights. And I, I should have taken out my phone and videotaped it. Everybody, except for one guy with a book, everybody was on a device, from children to old people to, to, to young people to business people to different nationalities. It didn't matter. Everybody, they were on their, their little screens, on their phones. They were on their iPods. They were actually on their tablets. They were on their computers. Everybody was on a screen. Everybody. Today, the average person checks their smartphones. Listen to this. 150 plus times a day. I don't check mine that much, so that means somebody's probably checking theirs maybe two or three hundred times a day. We are full-blown addicts of technology. I think many of us are. Are you? I don't know. So as we go through this, this seminar this week, ask the question, could this be a challenge in my life? It is a blessing, and we're going to look at that, but can it be a challenge? In fact, is being addicted to technology even a real thing? Is it actually something that, that science and, and researchers have discovered? We'll look at that as well. Is living in a digital age changing us for the better or worse? So these are some of the questions we're going to look at. What effect is social media having on our society today? And since the web gives us access to endless information, good or bad, what impact does this have on our memory? What impact does it have on our attention spans? And so these are just a few of the questions we will look at, we will answer over the next five days together. So let's start this message at the beginning of it. Let's just look at some general information about where the internet came from. How did this all start? Some people don't know the history. So let's look at the internet in general. And as we talk about this subject, I, I want you to be thinking about how this fits into our preparation for eternity. And I want you to ask the question, what can this do to help me be as a witness to the world? Is this a blessing in my life or is it a distraction in my life? Now, some of you might have been here two years ago when I presented the distraction dilemma, our music seminar. What the Lord has laid on our hearts, and that 12-hour seminar has revolutionized some people's lives and churches' lives and even conference lives when they come back to a sacred worship service for God. Praise the Lord. The question I have is, what are we doing to this temple? What are we doing here every day, maybe through our media, maybe through social media, through the internet and the searching and the things that are popping up on our screens. But friends, my question is, are we going to take any action? And I think we'll take action when we're informed. And that's what this seminar will be about. We're going to present the information and you with prayer start to pray and ask God, Lord, what modifications might I need to make in my digital life? And that Distraction Dilemma seminar started off as that music seminar. What we've discovered is there's a lot more, uh, many more topics that we need to speak on. 
So what we're going to do is we're going to put this social media seminar, we're going to record it later in September, and we're going to make it part of the Distraction Dilemma series. And then we're going to get into uh, gaming, we're going to get into pornography, and well, not get into pornography, but you know what I'm saying. We'll talk about these subjects. So this is our Digital Life Seminar, and it's the second installment in our Distraction Dilemma series. So to begin... We're going to take a quick look at how this all started. So let's go through a basic history. In 1969, the ARPANET was started by the U.S. government. Wouldn't you know it? The government started it all, right? Computers at Stanford and UCLA connected for the first time. In effect, they were the first hosts on what would one day become the Internet. So the internet was originally developed as a way of communicating between researchers who were far away from one another. So they, they developed a way, we need to learn how to exchange some information. Now, is exchanging information a bad thing? Of course not. That's what I'm in the business to do, is exchange spiritual information that can help souls. So to begin with, frankly, Computers could only transfer files within a short distance where there was some sort of tangible connection. And then they came up with this way to where computers could, could on this ARPANET, could communicate with one another, and it started this whole new revolutionary way of communication. In the 1970s, the first ARPANET directory, this is crazy, was published. So this directory, which was one inch thick, had all the descriptions of every host computer on the network. So in 1970, by the 1970, one year, it was one inch thick of all the computers on this ARPANET. So if you wanted, this is funny, because you couldn't at the time search. There was no such thing as Google. There were no search engines. You had to open a directory and say, I wanted to connect with Christian Bernal. Okay, here's the code I type in, and it connects to this computer. So there was a one inch thick book in 1970 with this description and containing all these host computers. If printed out now, it would be more than 72 miles thick. <laughs> That's how much information that we have access to, which is staggering. In 1971, email was first developed by Ray Tomlinson, who also made the decision to use the at symbol to separate the username from the computer, which later became known as the domain name. So they just started figuring things out because this was all brand new. So literally some guys were just figuring out, how are we going to do all of this? Today, 269 billion emails are sent out daily. Not surprising, 81% of those emails are spam. That's basically like saying 200 billion emails are spam emails every day. I, you know, we have all this technology, how come we can't get rid of spam? I stopped eating that when I was very young and I don't want it in my computer either. So, in 1991, the first web page was created. What was the purpose of the first web page? Does anybody know? It was to explain what the World Wide Web was. Can you think back to that? Only 1991. 
we had to explain to people what the World Wide Web was. Friends, that's not too long ago. And look where we are today. By the time we jump into 1995, this whole commercialization process began. In fact, it's really considered to be the first year that the web became commercialized. Netscape, they actually, do you remember Netscape? <laughs> Some of us do, right? Netscape made it safer to conduct financial transactions like credit card payments online. Before that, it was just trying to find information, to give information, for really for research, frankly. So, in 1995, there were two other businesses that actually got their start. They were, they were in at the beginning. There was this company called Echo Bay. They made their first sale in 1995, and that company eventually became known as eBay. Amazon also started in 1995. Amazingly enough, it didn't even turn a profit for six years until 2001. Now they're one of the most successful companies on the planet. Then let's jump to 1998. Google went live, revolutionizing the way in which people found information online. Before that, like I mentioned, you couldn't find information unless you had that directory or, you, or someone shared that, that link with you and then you could type in this code and get there. 2001, Wikipedia is launched. Now, I want you to see the trend. It starts with little tiny communication between scientists and researchers and the U.S. government. And then all this introduction of information starts and how to access it, it starts. And it starts to, not snowball yet, but it's increasing. Then by the time we hit 2001, we already have websites going, we have search engines going. You can actually now, in the late 90s, you can actually type in and find something just by a, a keyword search on Google. And then, all of a sudden, people say, this would be a great platform to put like, things like history and medical information. Before you know it, it starts to explode. A website like Wikipedia paved the way for collective web content generation and social media. So before, this medical university would give this information and you could access it. Now with websites like Wikipedia, everybody is part of the editing process. So what happens when everybody gets involved? It explodes. Why are we, why are we laying this foundation? Because we have to understand just how large and colossal this World Wide Web is. Why? Because there's a lot of stuff we can access that we're going to be looking at. In fact, the queries that, that you and I are largely engaged in, probably 99.99% of us, we are what is called surface web browsers. We are just browsing or surfing the web um, on a surface level. Why do we say that? Because, frankly, what the, when, you, when you look at the percentages of usage when it comes to the internet, what we're doing is actually a minuscule percentage of what's really going on on the internet. In fact, let's look at this. We, above that line, we're what we call, we're surface web surfers. And this is where you would have Bing, Google, Wikipedia, you're doing your, you know, uh, normal search engine type things. The remaining part of the web is called the deep web. 
and it's much larger than the surface web. Now, this is where you start going, oh, I didn't know that. The deep web contains 90% of the information on the internet. Not the surface web, the deep web. But it's not freely accessible by surface searching and surface web browsing. So to access this information here, you typically have to sign in, have an account, and this is where social media sites reside, etc. Sadly, the line between the surface web and the deep web are becoming now very blurred. And due to all the privacy loss, anybody heard of those lately? The data breaches, all the hacking that's going on, the overall lack of any sort of monitoring or controls, it's becoming a, a serious issue and problem for us in our online lives. Then, below, now, now just so you know, when you look at the deep web, this is where academic information resides, our medical records, legal documents, scientific reports. Um, this is where we have financial record, government resources, and on and on and on. But there's another layer of the internet, which is called the dark web. And the dark web, which probably, I hope and pray, none of us here have ever been on the dark web. I haven't even gone, and even researching for this, I never went on the dark web just to see what it was all about because I had already read enough reports and had people telling me exactly what it's all about. And you, I mean, you can go and watch 60 Minutes and watch a documentary on what the dark web is without having to go search the dark web. What's wrong with the dark web? Well, this is where there's illegal information. This is where there's drug trafficking and human trafficking websites. You can literally buy people on the dark web. You can buy any kind of drug you want, designer or street. You can, you can, everything that a, a reprobate mind would want to do, they can do on the dark web. Everything. In fact, it's said, this is a, a known quote in the web community, Nothing good happens on the dark web. Then we jump to 2004. Facebook launches, and though at the time it was only open to college students, and it was called The Facebook. But what's interesting is that the usage since 2004 through 2010, it continued to grow every year. Now, if we look at this chart, What's amazing is this is a timeline of the worldwide number of monthly active Facebook users from 2004 to 2017. Now, I don't know how well you can see the slide, but it starts down there at 2004 as almost no, no users. And by the time that we hit 2017, there are over 2 billion monthly active users. Do, do you have a conception of what a billion is? A billion is so colossal, it's, it's, it's staggering to the mind. I wish I could remember specifically what it means. It's something like a million seconds is something like two weeks. And, and I'm giving you rough here, you can, you can do the math. And something like a billion seconds, was, it's, it's years. It's years. A colossal amount of years. So you have two billion monthly active users, and over a half of them, a billion, are active daily users. So, when you look at our Earth's population, a seventh of the world every single day is on Facebook. And I can tell you, 
Not everything on Facebook God approves of. 2007. The biggest innovation was most certainly the iPhone or smartphones, which was responsible for renewed interest in mobile web applications and design. So we go from, this is, keep this in perspective, this is like a history, right? We go from the computer talking to computer scientists, researchers, and all they do is share bits of data, right? And it starts to grow and continues to grow. And then we have the, the web browsers that are introduced. And then we have the Wikipedias. And then we can search and we can buy and we can sell and we can do all the stuff. And before you know it, we, we, we always had to do it on the computer. But then guess what? We can start to do it from our pockets. You think this is gonna, was, was going to cause some sort of problem? I mean, you think it through. Before you had to go to a physical computer. And now you have an even more powerful computer in your pocket whenever you want it, wherever you want it. You can pull out any kind of information right out of the air. It's like the prince of the power of the air, the devil, knows all about this, and indeed he does. But what's crazy now is they start developing, not just getting on the internet with your smartphone, let's start creating applications that can go and grab copious amounts of information from that web and games and everything else that we'll talk about. So mobile browsing and surfing actually enables people now, and I'm telling you anything you don't know, enables us to have a constant online presence and experience and virtual lives and losing our money on gaming and whatever it may be and gambling. In 2016, this is, this is amazing, to put it in perspective, there were approximately 7 billion people on the planet. 2016, 7 billion people. But what's interesting is, in 2016, there were over 23 billion devices connected to the internet. So that's an average of three devices per person. It's not enough now just to have the computer. Now we have to have the computer, the laptop, or the home computer, and the tablet, and the phone, do we really need all that? Well, we do. We think we need it today to survive. I don't know how our ancestors did it for 6,000 years previously, but they did. And frankly, they did it way better than we're doing it today. Because with that instant access comes instant temptation if you're not careful, right? Right? Amen. So, the average person spends now 10 hours a day online. We spend more time on the internet now than we do sleeping. The average person does not get 10 hours of sleep. The average person is getting anywhere from 5 to 7 if they're lucky. But we're spending more time on the internet than we are sleeping. What's going on here? It's called brain hacking. And we're going to get into that this week. Companies and researchers, scientists, psychologists, they sit in rooms and figure out how do we make these people want to use our apps, our games, and, and even the social media and the online shopping. How do we get them to, to, to want to continue to do it? Well, we hack their brains. What do you mean? 
We start stimulating certain parts of the brain, the reward centers and stuff, and before you know it, we do become addicted to the experience. And the latest technology is saying we become addicted to the actual devices themselves. Even the way that we buy them and when we, we open them, right? You hear the angels singing. Oh, I love that new smell of that phone. We're unwrapping it. Oh, oh. You get an Apple product? Who doesn't like unwrapping an Apple product? It's all part of the psychology of it all. Today, we can do almost everything online. In fact, we can even plant and water gardens. So today, being online, it's now a way of life. And friends, it's not going to change. It's going to be here. But we need to have some tools in our toolbox. We need to have some principles. We need to have some ideas. We need to have some thought processes. We need to be aware of what's going on so we can make informed decisions, especially with our children. That was a perfect time for a hearty amen. So, being online today is a way of life for us. We use search engines. We send and read emails. We search maps. We route directions. We check the weather. We buy and sell products. We watch TV, movies, and YouTube. Uh, Social media networking with Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat. Some of you don't even know what these are, but we'll, we'll teach you about them so you can understand, especially if you have young people in your homes uh, or you're working with young people or it's a problem in your life. We book travel. We do online baking. We get our education even. You don't even have to go to school tangibly, physically anymore. You could just do it in your PJs at home. And we go job hunting. We can do uh, anything ourselves now. If you, this is crazy. If you want to learn how to do something, you can pretty much type it into YouTube or somewhere on the internet, and there will be a video teaching you how to do it. If you want to know how to brush your cat, you can learn. Everything is there. Everything. And I'm thinking, why did somebody make that video? But then I go, well, I'm watching it. Right? Online classified ads like Craigslist, we get our news, we get our sports, there's online gaming, there's online gambling, we can make video calls using Skype or FaceTime or, or similar applications, there's online auctions like eBay, there's broadcasts that are recorded and live video. Now, understand, this is not all bad, right? No, I was just in California at a camp meeting speaking there and setting it up and running, and we, we had high-speed internet, so we could live stream the events right there on Facebook Live. And guess what? It's spiritual content. It's the three angels' messages. Go message, amen? That's a great use of these tools. So I'm not against our digital life. We just got to be careful with our digital life that it doesn't distract us from our maker. We tweet. Some of you don't know what that is. Well, I think probably most everybody does since we have a new president. Texting and instant messaging, online dating, and virtual worlds like Second Life. And this is so sad. In fact, it's called Second Life, but for some people it's becoming their life. You can do everything in a virtual life now. Did you know you can actually buy virtual property with real money? What, what a scam is that? 
you can, listen to this, I could become a car designer. I could become a furniture designer. And I can design virtual digital furniture that you buy with real money to, to furnish your virtual home. Did you know this is going on? And it goes way deeper. I can have my my dream woman designed. It's it's pretty crazy what's going on. And we can do all of this and much more. 27, 24 days. Let me try that again. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Right on our phones, our tablets, and our computers. And frankly, this is what scares me. We can access all all of this information that we never for 6,000 years of Earth's history, we can access all of this instantaneously, wherever we are pretty much, whenever we are, and get whatever we want. So not only is this an amazing tool for us as a people in general, but as I've mentioned, it's a powerful tool for us as Christians. Let's use it, right? The devil is, well, then we need to, as Christians, give the devil a black eye by using it as well, appropriately, in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So let's look at it in four ways. We have communication. We communicate with each other with emails and instant messaging, and this facilitates communication, which helps us, if we do it right, to stay in contact with church members, with new interests, with shut-ins, and those in remote places. We can interact. We can encourage others more consistently even. We can have discussions. I suppose suppose discussion for sure is better than debate because usually nobody ever wins in a debate, but discussions can be amazing. Why? Because we can discuss spiritual items with others that have deeper understanding on message boards and in chat rooms. You can lead Bible studies. You can use the internet as a way to lead souls to Christ. My mother and my stepfather, I just call them my, my, my father now, my, my mom and my dad, they have not been Seventh-day Adventists ever in their life, and they weren't really interested in the religion that I had accepted and embraced wholeheartedly. And as I'm going around the world for the last 25 years, being able to sing and preach for God. My parents were were proud of me because I was a spiritual man, by God's grace, and doing God's work. But they didn't necessarily accept what we had a hold of. Two Christmases ago, they were at our home for the holiday season, and we were having staff worship at Shepherd's Call Ministry. And they were invited in. And I said, of course, would you like to join us for staff worship? Of course, yes. And we were reading through an amazing light read called The Great Controversy. And we happened to be in one of those lighter chapters talking about the change of of, of, uh, the Sunday sacredness from Sabbath to Sunday and who was responsible for that. And interestingly enough, my mom chimed in right at that point and said, it was you that told me that, right? I said, yeah, I did, you know, years ago. I was like, Mom, I want to talk to you about some things. And we had even done a Sabbath study with her, and she started crying. And she said, you know, Christian, I, I, I just, I need to follow my husband. I said, Mom, you need to follow your God. 
because she was convicted of it at that point. This was years ago, and she never did. But she said, would you, would you show us that? Could you show me where that change happened? I said, yeah, no problem. So we went and grabbed some, some documents and started showing her. And she said, would you, could you study this out more with us? And of course, I'm going, of course. Inside, I'm going, woo-hoo-hoo. And outside, I'm like, yes, of course. Right? And so I said, Let, let's study this out. And I said, why don't we start with the Sabbath? Let's do a Bible study on the Sabbath. And so we studied, there's a reason I'm telling you this. So we studied this out. And my mom begins to cry. We spent, Kobe and I and my mom and dad, we spent at least two hours, maybe two and a half hours together studying and reasoning in the Word. And they came away with the overwhelming conclusion that the seventh day was the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And they needed to keep it. Now, this is 24, three years after I had become a Seventh-day Adventist. So, by the way, never stop praying for your family. And so what happens? They say, my mom's crying. And she says, I, uh, I said, Mom, why are you crying? She goes, well, what are we going to do? And she looks over at my dad. My dad says, well, we're going to find a new church. Amen. And, I, and inside I'm going, oh, yes, praise the Lord. But the problem was, I was living at the time in New Mexico, and they lived in California. Well, they left. We had some Bible studies after that, but they left. So how can we have consistent Bible studies in a way that's meaningful and that could even lead to soul conversion? Well, I used the internet. A righteous use of the internet. So every, uh, every Sabbath afternoon, we had a, a date with each other when I was free and I wasn't speaking. And, and so it took us a year and a half to get through 27 Bible studies. And we did it over FaceTime. And you want to know what? My mom and dad decided this is the truth through the internet. This is the truth. We need to find a church. Of course, they started going just two weeks after we, well, they left my house back then, a year and a half ago. And, and they said, we need to find a church. So they found a little church in Lodi, California, English Oaks. They started going. Guess what they found? A whole bunch of friends they already had that were covert Adventists, in a sense. They didn't even know some of them were Adventists. They had been working on community projects and different things. Not that we walk around going, I'm Adventist. You know what I'm saying. I'm not trying to get down on my brothers. But the reality is my mom said, I already had a built-in friendship with multiple people in that church. They've been going for over a year now. Guess what? We're one study away from them to make a decision for baptism. So can we use and have beautiful spiritual discussions with people utilizing this amazing gift that I believe that we have been given? Amen. Yes, we can. Biblical materials, of course, and this is what I was just talking about. We can have Bible as online. You can find commentaries, online books, audio, video sermons, sermon outlines, spiritual articles, and Bible studies, of course, we can have with people. And, of course, we have evangelism. People can search without being preached at, and they can study the Word anywhere in the world, anytime they want when they have access. So the net is becoming this universal medium. It's the conduit for most of the information that flows through our eyes and our ears into our minds. And the advantages, 
of having immediate access to such incredible rich store of information are many, but the dangers are just as prevalent because anything your heart desires, you can find on the internet. And if we have a heart that is unconverted, be careful little eyes what you see. Be careful little ears what you hear. You can find the most uplifting, ennobling, heavenly content or the lowest, most disgusting and depraved content. So we as Christians, specifically as Christian parents and spouses, we need to be very careful. We need to be careful because there is an adversary out there. As a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, Satan that is, in case you were confused, And he was an early adopter of this technology. You know what an early adopter is? It's basically what it sounds like. Whatever the newest technology is, I'm going to adopt it into my life immediately, even without thinking about it. I believe the devil has always been an early adopter because he's like, if there's another way I can steal a soul, I'm in. And I believe that he got involved in this latest technology. And whatever will advance his philosophies and his way of living, he will use to the fullest. And indeed, my friends, he is. So what we're really talking about is not newly invented sins, right? We're talking about newly invented ways of committing those old, old sins. Ecclesiastes 9, uh, 1, 9 and 10 tells us, that there is nothing new under the sun. So how does Satan use this internet to steal souls? Well, he propagates false teachings. Stealing and piracy and plagiarism. Cyberbullying and gambling. Virtual lives and worlds. Gaming and pornography. Social media and networking. You see, before, the only way that we could get information two people was through a physical medium, like writing it down and, and, and giving it to people or anciently on rocks or on animal skins and then books and then letters. So frankly, it was easier for the shepherds of God's congregations to help the people avert the evil. Are you following? But now it's so easily accessible to anything that we want It's a much more difficult job for the shepherds today. Why? Because it's much easier to be lost today than it was just 10 years ago, my friends. When I was growing up, the only way that you could see pornography is if somebody had a printed magazine or book or or videotape. You follow what I'm saying? Before that, you had to actually just see the woman or the man naked. You follow what I'm saying? We... We are a generation, and this next generation, we are a generation of people who are moving so fastly, excuse me, so fast to a place to where I believe it's going to be, we're going to see with our own eyes, and I think in this generation, I'm not a time setter, but the way it's going, just open our eyes, that this particular, we're going to see that the thoughts and intents of people will only be evil continually, but by the grace of God. There, we have some serious problems with this new, new generation. It's hard for these, 
these pastors and these shepherds of the church to protect the body of Christ from the infiltration of these false theories and damning ideas. And now the, the, the information, it comes directly into our homes, it comes into our children's pockets. So let's look at some of the statistics. Let's see, is it really a problem, Christian? Maybe you're just making something, a mountain out of a molehill. No, no, let's look at this. There are approximately 3.9 billion people on the internet. We have about 7 billion on the planet. More than half of the world's population is on the internet. 83% of North Americans are internet users. That's, that's 8 out of 10. It took radio, let's put it in perspective, it took radio 38 years to reach 50 million users. Television, 13 years to reach uh, uh, 50 million. The World Wide Web, 4 years to reach 50 million users. So you go from 38 years to 4. Bam. So that means that a huge amount of people are accessing this information rapidly. We've already mentioned 269 billion emails are sent per day. 80% of those emails are spam. 47 billion websites now. 47 billion websites. Now, let's just put that into perspective. If you burned CDs, data CDs, with the data flow for just one day on the web, okay? So, on those 47 billion sites, the data stream of information, and you burnt it onto CDs, guess how far that would stretch to and back? How many would think from the West Coast to the East Coast and back? Anybody think it would do that? Yeah, some of you? How about around the world two times? Little thin CDs burning data. No. You know how far it would go to Mars, the planet Mars and back in one day. Now, why do we say this? Well, because some of the stats that are coming up, like 80% of all searches on the web are dealing with a subject that's pretty scary. We'll look at that in just a moment. 30,000 plus sites are hacked every day worldwide. (laughs) And a majority of them are from the United States. Every 60 seconds, how many? Every 60 seconds, there are 3.8 million Google searches. Every, every minute, every minute someone is, is searching. 66,000 Instagram posts are shared every minute. 450,000 tweets are constructed every minute. 300 hours of YouTube videos are uploaded to the World Wide Web every minute. Can you see how it's going? It started here, a little bit of data, and it's exploding. Amazing. Now, I just referenced why, why having those 3.8 million Google searches every minute, what's 80% of all pictures, by the way, on the Internet are of naked women? If you take all of the pictures on the internet, 80% of them are of naked women. 
Do you think this could be a problem for a visual man or a visual woman? One-third of all internet searches are for pornography. So you take that 39.3 billion a day, I mean a minute, one-third for pornography. What's going on, my friends? It's, it's unfiltered access. It's a problem. It's harder to be saved today than it was just 20 years ago, just 10 years ago. So, among the internet users, 39.7 million are U.S. children and teens. So that accounts for 62.8 of our youth, ages 3 to 19. So we have this nearly, well, we have two-thirds almost of our young people are on the internet. But when looking at ages just 12 to 17, a new Pew Internet Project report reveals that that number jumps from 62.8% to 93% of our teens are online. That's basically saying everybody. If I took 10 of our young people out of any one of our tents that, that are aged, of course, between, this is talking about between the, what is it, what was it, 12 and 17, and you lined up those 10, almost nine and a half of them are online. So friends, when you think about that, it's logical to think since a third of all internet searches are for pornography, we have a serious problem in our world with our young people. Don't think that your young people aren't searching for it or at minimum have been exposed to it even by accident. You know how we know that they have been? Because I get to go around to a lot of academies and work with young people. And I start, they start coming out of the woodworks telling me the problems that they're having. They're telling me that they are addicted to this thing called pornography already at a ripe young age. You know what it is? You know what it is? Our children are becoming experts at sin at younger ages. That's what it is. Ellen White talks about, listen to this. Ellen White makes that statement where she says, on the playground, the worldly little children and, 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 and non-moral children, it's putting our children under demoralizing influences to send them to public schools is what she said because those children will train our children to be experts in sin. Friends, the internet is far worse of a playground than any little kid playground out there on, uh, in the planet. But parents let kids just w- watch what they want and download what they want and look at what they want. We'll look at that in just a moment. So let's talk about our young people for a minute. What we would call the digital natives of today. So what, what, what's it mean to be a, a digital native? A digital native are those who are born into or brought up during the age of digital technology and therefore are familiar with computers and the internet from an early age. Whereas the majority of us would be considered digital immigrants, meaning that we grew up in the analog age where an analog would be you have to use a book to get the information, right? Digital is you you grab it on on a, a PDF file or on Wikipedia or what have you on a device. And so... Before this widespread use of digital 
technology, we were considered digital immigrants because we've now immigrated into the digital world. But this is very different because our minds were able to develop, which we're going to look at this week, our minds were able to develop in a very different way. And so we even, listen, we use the digital technology entirely different than the digital natives. It's just a way of life for them. We have adopted it. They have been born into it. If I go to a culture and I'm an immigrant into that culture, I'm always going to feel kind of like an immigrant in that culture. You follow what I'm saying? Because I wasn't born into it. But if I was born into the culture, it's just my culture. This is our children. They're being born into this digital age. It's just part of them. I see all over the place little kids doing stuff with their, with their iPads and stuff that I'm like, how did he do that? I'm talking like three-year-olds. They just take to it. Why? Their brains, but we're going to find, their brains are literally physiologically being rewired in a way that's different than your brain and mine. What we're going to share with you this week is going to blow your mind. We're just laying some foundation right now. In a youth online behavior study, it was reported that 58% of our youth consider themselves to be heavy users six to seven days a week. Almost 60% of, of our youth are saying, I, I'm using heavy user six to seven days a week. 61% of kids play multi online, multiplayer online games or MOGs. So 61%. I don't know why these numbers are so crazy high, except for that, it's their way of life, and it's addicting, which we will show later. 81%, that's a huge number, of 16 to 17-year-olds use social networking. 53% of kids download media. The children are just on there, and mom and dad largely are not monitoring what's going on. In fact, most parents know what their younger children do on the internet, but 91% of kids say their parents trust them to do what's right on the internet. Come on, parents. We've got to be careful. We, you cannot assume that our, our young tender plants that we're supposed to train up and guide can handle what's going on on the internet because some things that are going on are very, very demoralizing. Parents are just not monitoring the activities of their older kids. 56, this, this is what the kids are saying when they are researched. Nine, in other words, almost 100%, 9 out of 10 are saying, my parents trust me to do what's right. 56% say parents only know some of what they actually do. That's scary. 26% say their parents don't have time to check up on them. Well, why is that? Because we're busy, 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 busy. You know what busy stands for, right? Being under Satan's yoke, my friends. When we are so busy that we cannot even monitor what our kids are doing in their lives, then we're out of balance. Am I right? Yeah, when, when we can't monitor what they're doing and assume because they were raised in Sabbath school and they sing these wonderful songs, which is all beautiful and wonderful, and we have family worship and we have family time, and then you know what? Mom, can, Dad, can I, can I get online for a little, or can I be on my device or play a game you know, before I go to bed for an hour or whatever? And Mom and Dad say, yeah, go ahead. 
Well, of course, we just filled them with spiritual food, so they're going to make spiritual decisions, right? Because after all, the devil doesn't even tempt us adults to look at things we shouldn't. But we expect our little kids and our teenagers to make these moral decisions when the temptation, 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 temptation. You know what temptation is, right? It's an enticement to sin. It's not the sin itself. But when you get on the internet, there's enticements to sin everywhere. Poor little children. Poor teens. 32% of teens, a younger, excuse me, teen children, do not tell their parents anything about what they're doing online. In fact, 56% of teens hide their online activities. This was across all social, economic, and religious spectrum. It didn't matter. It was in every group. 56, over half, were like, I don't even tell my parents what I'm looking at or what I'm engaging or what I'm doing. And so here are the most common ways that young people, and adults, frankly, hide their online activities. They minimize their browsers when their parents are near. In fact, on an Apple computer, I'm assuming it's probably the same on a Windows uh, machine as well, that all you have to do is hit, is hit Command-Tab, and you'll go to a different application even. So within a split second, you can't even see the finger stroke. They're switching. What are you doing, honey? Oh, I'm just reading. Oh, cool. And then walk away, tab right back. I'm right back into what I was doing. Or I just minimize that page that I was on on the internet, hide it, so the other one comes up. I'm studying for my homework. No, just a moment ago, your eyes were bugging out your head because you were looking at pornography. They hide or delete texts and emails. They clear browser history. Friends, if there's anything that you can do, even in your marriage, and in my marriage, my, my devices are open, my wife knows every single password, and she can look at my history of anything anytime she wants to, except for, I told her, the week leading up to her birthday. Because I'm trying maybe to find something nice for her, right? And that's not the time I'm diving into sin. I'm, I'm looking for something nice for her. So the reality is, we should be able to look at these things and hold each other accountable, especially our children. If the browser history is deleted, it didn't happen by accident. It's never happened in the history of the world. Somebody clicked on it. You follow what I'm saying? And if somebody's hiding the history, they're hiding something that they don't want you to know. So one thing you can do as a parent is to simply look, is the history still there and intact? If it is, you know, Search through it a tiny bit. Okay, good. They're, they're on the right kind of sites. They're doing the right types of things. It's not always a guarantee that they haven't been on another part of the internet we'll look at later. 34% say they often or always hide their online activities from their parents. This is, this is amazing. This is disturbingly amazing. One in five U.S. teens who regularly log on to the internet say they have received unwanted sexual solicitation via the web. One in five. And friends, the new numbers are showing it's closer to one in four. Solicitations were defined as requests to engage in sexual activities, requests to engage in sexual talk, or to give personal sexual information, measurements, and photos. These are the teens. One in 33 youth have received an aggressive sexual solicitation in the past year. This means a predator asked a young person to meet somewhere. One in 33. 
How many hundreds do we have here? That means most likely our young people on this very campus at this beautiful camp meeting have already been solicited to meet somebody somewhere else for sexual favors. We, we can't put our head in the sand anymore, amen? So we have to be educated about these things and open our eyes. So it also, an aggressive, uh, an aggressive sexual solicitation is not just always to go meet somewhere and of course engage in sexual activity, but it also included calling a young person on the phone or continued to send the young person correspondence. They'll even send money or gifts to the U.S. Postal Service to start to entice them. 77% of the targets for online predators were aged 14 to 17. That's the like sweet spot that these predators want. They want these girls or these boys that are, are moving into their prime, in their, in, in moving from a boy to a woman through, through this process that runs their hormones all over the place and, and turns a girl into a woman and a boy into a man. Well, predators, both male and female, want to have that. And so they're targeting specifically 14 to 17-year-olds. 22% were ages 10 to 13, and I just can't even believe this. In fact, more than half a million pedophiles you'll find at any given time on the internet. So, meet Susan, a 42-year-old man posing as a 15-year-old girl online. That's how it works. And Susan, quote-unquote, and your 13-year-old just made plans to meet at the park because we have so much in common. So what they do, these pedophiles, is that and the, these, these people that have mental and emotional issues who are not stable, they groom our young people to where, before you know it, the young people are asking to meet them. They're so good at this manipulation. An FBI article, Child Predators, it was entitled, The Online Threat Continues to Grow, is what it was called. The, he says here that the online presence, it's a recipe for trouble. trouble. We have naive teenagers predatory adults, and a medium, the internet, that easily connects them. Special Agent Greg Ween, who supervises a cyber squad in Chicago, said, it's an unfortunate fact of life that pedophiles are everywhere online. And when a young person visits an online forum for a popular teen singer or actor, Ween said, parents, quote, listen, parents can be reasonably certain that online predators will be there. Well, why would they hang out there? Because they know our kids are hanging out there. It's believed that more than half a million pedophiles are online every day. Back in 2005, which was, you know, 13 years ago, these were the numbers. We were, we're lurk, working to find the latest numbers. The Crimes Against Children Research Center reported that 25% of children have been exposed to unwanted pornographic material online. Today, that number has risen to 70% of children ages 7 to 18 being exposed to unwanted pornographic material while online. So we go from, we're, we're trying to collate more information to show you the trend and what's going on. So what we're finding is that we go from, what was that previous statistic? We go from 25% just 13 years ago to 70% of young people being exposed to sexual content, pornographic material, while they're online. 
And this is from being 7 to 18. And what, what, what are parents doing about it? Well, we're having some issues. According to another study, teens and young adults frequently encounter risks or unpleasant experiences online, whether intentionally or not. See, sometimes when your kids have seen that, it's not because they were trying to. It happened. It popped up. In fact, there are certain searches that these demoniacs out there, if you type in something as benign as XYZ thing, all of a sudden a pornography site will come up. That is by design of the devil, my friends, and his agents. So even doing homework, you're typing in that search, you could come up with something that is demoralizing. And what's, what's sad about this that only one out of four times that a teen encountered a risky online situation did they tell their parents about it. That's scary. Because the study found that the more parents freak out about these incidents, the less likely their teens are willing to tell them about it the next time. Right? Because what's the knee-jerk reaction? Well, we're just going to, we're not going to let you be on the internet. Uh, well, friends... Sometimes, literally, the kids have to do school now on the internet. They have to do research on the internet now. You can't take it away unless you do like we did and you homeschool them. Well, that just takes too much time and resources. You know what? It's worth every single penny and every single hour. One of the lead authors of this study wrote, and I'm going to read a couple slides here now. Teens need help navigating the online risks that they face so that they can learn from and overcome them. Parents don't freak out. Yet unless teens feel they can confide in their parents for help, they will ultimately have to handle these risks on their own. Because we freak out, they think, I better not take this to mom and dad because mom and dad can't even handle it, so I have to, as a, a preteen even, handle it. The authors noted these technologies are an everyday part of their teen lives. Dealing with this new digital reality is now an unavoidable part of good parenting, my friends, and needs to be embedded in family communication processes. Yet parents often underestimate how often teens experience these online risks, such as privacy breaches, or information or photos shared without permission, cyberbullying is exploding, my friends. Online harassment, sexual solicitations, and exposure to explicit pornographic, violent, deviant, or otherwise disturbing content is at an all-time high. And teens aren't likely to volunteer this information to mom and dad because mom and dad just might freak out. In the actual study, the types of incidences tracked were grouped into four categories. There were information breaches, online sexual harassment, sexual solicitations, exposure to explicit content, violent, deviant, or pornographic. And during the study's two months that they had it, there were 249 separate incidents in one of these categories that were reported. Teens mostly kept the situations to themselves and did not tell their parents. So in this study, they're tracking what's going on, the online content, what the kids are looking at, parents don't know, and just do what they normally would do. There were 249 separate incidences in a two-month period, and largely, they did not go and tell their parents. 
Often they felt embarrassed or uncomfortable, but didn't tell their parents mostly because they thought it was no big deal. That's another problem. They're being exposed so much now that sin becomes less sinful. Or they didn't want to deal with their parents reacting negatively. So here's what the researchers concluded. We now have more insight as to why family communication processes may break down. And many of these reasons involve how parents perceive and respond to the risk teens encounter online. When teens talk about their online experiences, listen, withhold judgment, and look for opportunities to help them navigate some of the strange and disturbing experiences they may encounter online. Reading on, understand that they are living in a different world and they are exposed to all kinds of content that may be alarming to us. But overreacting does nothing to help teens navigate these experiences. Fear-based parenting is not the solution. In our house, we implemented what we called the white flag rule in our home. And in fact, as I go around to different academies, I suggest that the staff also implements a white flag rule. In other words, you come in and say, I'm waving a white flag right now, Dad. I need to talk to you. Or teacher, I'm waving the, or, or principal, I'm waving the white flag right now. In other words, I've come to a realization or I'm struggling with the problem or I have this music and I shouldn't or I've been looking at pornography and I want victory. The problem is, as soon as we hear that they've done something wrong, slam, slam, cut their heads off. Is that how God deals with us? No, my friends. God is ever there with grace and mercy and information and guidance, right? Let's be more like God, the long-suffering Father He is with you and me in, in our lives. Let's be that way with our children. So we have that white flag policy. My children have come to me at different stages in their development and their growth. They're now 18 and 20, and I can't believe I just said that. But they said, Dad, white flag policy, white flag rule. And you know what that was for me? It was a, an, a visual indicator. Christian, check where your heart and mind is right now. Amen? Take a deep breath. This is probably going to be some pretty upsetting information because they're... they're flying the white flag, I already know they're nervous to come tell me, and the way I react can change everything. Is that right? Absolutely. So now we can have, I shoot up a prayer dart, Lord, I don't know what's coming, but you do. You've already made preparation for this, so please give me the grace and strength and wisdom perspective from heaven as I'm going to talk to my child, my child right now. Okay, son, what do you need? Right? And inside you're going, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, oh, please, Lord, no. And then they tell you whatever it may be. And you know, when they're little, you're able to control and to see everything that's going on. But as they grow older, and indeed they should be given more opportunity to make their own decisions. And indeed they need to have that freedom to not have mom and dad be that spiritual Hitler in the life all day long. They need to grow into their own person, right? Or otherwise when they break free, when they turn 18 or whatever, they're going to go nuts. But that doesn't mean we leave them to themselves. That means we're still involved in their life. Even my kids did not want me to be involved in their life as much as I was. But what's interesting is as soon as they moved out, they had a whole different perspective. I just, you know what? I'm going to read something to you that, that amazed me. Because my youngest son and I, we had, we had some, some, some sparks. We did. Because he was thinking I was too much in his life and trying to run and rule his life 
as a, as a young person. And I wouldn't let them watch this. And I wouldn't let them see this or do that. And so he thought that he was living in an abusive home almost. He did, and I'm thinking, I, I, I lived in an abusive home. I would almost laugh at it because I'm like, no. And my other son's going, what? This is a great home. What are you talking about? Hey, Dad, just wanted to say Happy Father's Day. You're the best father anyone could hope for. You've always tried to push me with my dreams and things I wanted in life, and you've taught me so much how to be a man as well as just how to thrive in life. You're the best role model I've ever had, and I hope to be a fraction of how amazing a father you are once I have my children of my own. You want to know what that is? That's an involved parent that's not worried about my son being upset because I said no. Amen? Friends, they may not see it right now. They may hate you right now. You're ruining my life. Oh, these are all the phrases that he would say. But when they get some adult perspective and they start thinking and not just feeling, they start writing you things like this. So do the right thing. Amen? Praise God. So we use that white flag uh, rule and most children and teens all have these devices at alarming rates. And here's a, a study that they found in a Pew uh, Research Center report. They found that most notably smartphone ownership has become a staple of teen life. 95% of teens now report they have a smartphone or access to one. No matter the demographic, no matter the backgrounds, no matter income level, no matter culture, 95% of our teens have access to whatever they want now. And friends, we're going to learn as we move on throughout this week that putting in some of these precautionary web browsers that, that we used even that would, when they type in keyword searches, they weren't just on Google and they could search whatever they wanted. We had some of these Christian filters in place so it would help. But friends, it didn't solve all the problem. Okay? So Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, YouTube, these are the top platforms used on all of these devices, which is, of course, the same for adults. The numbers are staggering. 45% of teens say that they are online almost constantly. These mobile connections and uses are, in turn, fueling more persistent online activities. From just, listen, 2015, when 24% of teens were reported to be online almost constantly. To 2018, the number went from 24% in just three years and has increased to 45%. 45%. From three years ago, 24%. This means that almost constantly they are online and it's just as high for adults. A new book by Stanford psychiatrist proved provides a sober warning about how our use of the internet is making us more angry, selfish, and impatient. In his book, uh, Virtually You, Dr. Elias A. argues that the time we spend on the internet doesn't just cause us to have online alter egos, it also changes our character. Um, hello, Christians? Anybody want to be a witness? It also changes our character who we are, and how we relate to others. His book refers to the psychological costs that we are paying for our collective love affair with technology. Normally, we mature 
and then continue to grow by learning to delay gratification, live within a moral framework, and respect other people. Maturity also involves learning how to control our aggressive impulses. Dr. A contends that this maturity is governed by our instinct policing superego. But in the wild west of the internet, the restraint and maturity of our superego has gone AWOL. The anonymous, narcissistic culture of the new social media produces what he calls ordinary, everyday viciousness. So, tomorrow we're going to look at some of the effects now. We're going to get into what happens with the brain. What are the brain implications in this new digital age? And we're going to look at what the, this new tech industry, what the insiders and whistleblowers are calling brain hacking. So tomorrow we're going to look in how we are having our brains hacked by corporate America and our online experiences. Has any of this made sense to anybody here today? Praise God. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, little ears, what you hear, little hands, what you do, little feet, where you go. You know the song, right? There's so much truth in that. God bless you, and may your names remain in the book of life. Maybe we can have a closing prayer. Let's, let's pray, folks. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you. We ask for wisdom in this digital age. Lord, you knew this was coming. We want to use what we have at our fingertips for righteousness' sake. And Father, may it never be a snare to steal us away or distract us away from you, our Maker. Lord, forgive us for where we have stumbled, where we have backslidden. And Lord, help us to be keenly aware and see sin and these enticements for sin as what they are. Help us to perceive from your eyes exactly the dangers that lie ahead. But Father, help us to go with strength as we hide ourselves in you, surrendering to you the guidance of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the angels. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for uh, everything that you've provided us with. And this is just yet a little bit of information, a little bit more. Help us to embrace it, help us to use it, and to become educated people and not just puppets of the devil. Lord, we love you and we need you. And we pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.